sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in and have a seat. All the books here are those we use to uh, research our show. And the individual to my right, uh, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that we'll be directly quoting from these books. Uh, her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. And uh, today we have a third person here for this, uh, Mr. Petrovich, whom we were discussing in our last episode, the uh, gentleman helping with some uh, tasks around the uh, yard. You can say hello. Don't touch the mic. You don't need to be that close. Just stay about six inches. Like this? Yes. Just say hello. Hello. Okay, well, that's done. Um, now what? Well, I thought it would just be interesting to let the listeners... I don't know. I, I just thought having a third person would be dynamic. As you've been saying. I didn't really have a specific plan. I mean, that's what we do. Just launch into it and see where it goes, right? If that's okay with you, Mr. Petrovich. Yes. Too, too close? Now you are. Sorry. There. Should we that's six inches. Look. Six, six inches. Six inches. Should we start over? I told you we'll give it 15 minutes, then I start the show. I don't know what you were expecting. Well, Mr. Petrovich and I were talking about the hives. Apparently, his sister and brother-in-law kept bees, too, and used to sell honey in Serbia. Isn't that right, Mr. Petrovich? We are on radio? No, it's a podcast. On the mm. internet. Facebook. Click like. <laughs> Isn't that right, Mr. Petrovich? That your sister in Serbia kept bees? Bees? That she keeps bees. Zzz, zzz, for honey? Bees, bees, bees. I mean, you told me that your sister keeps bees to make honey, like me. Your sister and brother-in-law? No, no, my my brother-in-law is killed. Oh. 1999, he is shot, you know, Kosovo War. They come in house and are shooting. My sister, they shoot off her hands because she is holding shut door. They are killing and burning houses everywhere. These are Albanian men, like devils. My sister, she had no hands because she is holding door. But then doctors give her new hands. But they are hands of doll. Oh. They are like doll. Small hands. I'm so sorry. There is no honey in Kosovo. Nothing sweet in Serbia, so... So I come to America, to Las Vegas, and marry beautiful American woman who is prostitute. She is lazy and will not work, so then I am angry and leave. This is my happy life. 
You are putting me on Facebook? Oh, um, I don't know. Mr. Ridenauer may want to start all this over. I am so sorry about your sister and brother-in-law. I have Facebook. Well... I thought you were going to ask him to whistle. Uh, I don't know. song you're so obsessed with. And Tinder. You have Tinder too? I do not. Swipe right? No. What? Well, what about this whistling? That song you whistle? No whistling. Well, you don't have to whistle on the podcast. Not now if you're feeling shy, but maybe you can tell us the name. There is no whistling. Well, okay, not now. You don't have to, but when you work, the whistling you do outside. It's lovely, and I was curious. I mean, we were curious. There is no whistling. Maybe it is your ghost's whistling. Don't! Look, can we just start over and delete this? I don't mind recording the opening again, and we don't need Mr. Petrovich. I don't know what I was thinking. Let me just record the episode title, then we can take a break, and you can show them out. I just don't like how this went. Don't worry, I won't use this take. Episode 41, Beasts of the Bestiaries. I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to um, further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive a number of different monthly rewards, including the book I've mentioned, And um, I'll have uh, more about Patreon at the end of the episode. Oh, sirs, Christ is our pelican who has nourished and fed us with his own blood. Christ's red blood has taken away our red guilt. Scarlet red sinners have become milk-white saints when washed in his blood. Christ bled love at every vein. His drops of blood were drops of love. Yes, the more bloody he was, the more lovely. You're hearing a recording of a 17th century sermon by the Puritan preacher William Dyer, uh, put out by Chicago's Moody Bible Institute with a bit of my own customization, of course. But I'm not responsible for the weird equation of Jesus Christ to a large water bird. Dyer is here making use of traditional symbolism from bestiaries of the Middle Ages and Renaissance. These were encyclopedias describing the traits of various animals and occasionally other natural elements like gems, and usually finding in these some form of allegory to uh, Christian teachings. As for the uh, pelican comparison, the idea was that the uh, bird would wound her own breast to produce blood to feed her young when nothing else was available. Uh, Stranger still, in some versions, it's even said that the baby birds, in their uh, 
extreme eagerness for food would uh, strike at the mother and in turn be struck dead by the mother only to be revived by her three days later with this uh, trickle of blood she produced from her chest. Though there's no shred of truth in this idea of killing and reviving the baby birds, it's thought that the uh, pelican might get the impression of stabbing itself when uh, pushing its bill into its breast, something it uh, habitually does as a means of squeezing out extra water caught up in its pouch. Along with animals from the real world, bestiaries uh, frequently included mythical animals said to reside in faraway lands. While we may be uh, easily amused by some of these fanciful creatures, as well as the uh, fanciful traits attributed to animals we know, like the pelican, I do want to point out that uh, these books weren't necessarily understood literally by medieval readers, at least not in all the details. They were not read uh, strictly as natural history texts, but would be regarded as um, an entertaining and uh, learned way to present truths of the church allegorically. Unless you have the wrong impression, not all the listings one would find in a bestiary would be as absurd or fantastic as those I'll be presenting. Um, I'll be focusing on the more uh, weird and obscure creatures, so I wouldn't, for instance, be mentioning unicorns, which are, of course, well-known and also, frankly, off-putting because, well, unicorns. Let's start with the crowd-pleaser, the uh, creature known as a bonicon. We'll go back to the uh, first century source for this one, the description offered by Pliny the Elder in his book, Natural History. It has the mane of a horse, but otherwise resembles a bull. It has horns that curve back, so they are useless for fighting. When attacked, it runs away while releasing a trail of dung that can cover three furloughs. Contact with the dung burns pursuers as though they have touched fire. Three furlongs would mean a spray of uh, roughly 2,000 feet. Pliny cites as the animal's habitat, uh, Paeonia, which uh, today would be in Macedonia, though later sources place the animal in Asia, that is, further away, which would seem a wise choice in this case. Our next creature is the fearsome manticore. The English rendering of its Latin name derived from the Greek, from an early Persian word, meaning man-eater. This uh, monster, which is supposed to reside in India, enters the West via Cesia of Nidus, a Greek historian and physician working in the uh, court of Artaxerxes II of Persia in the 5th century BC. Though he had not visited India himself, this did not stop Cesia from collecting the stories of uh, Persian travelers to the subcontinent and compiling them in his book, Indica, some details of which were later passed on by Pliny and others and eventually recounted in medieval texts. In 1240, the Parisian scholar and uh, Franciscan Bartolomeus Anglicus included the Manticore in volume 18 of his encyclopedic on the properties of things, writing that the creature is like to the bear in body and hair, and to a man in face, and hath a right red head, and a full great mouth, and most horrible in either jaw, 
three rows of teeth. The outer limbs are as the outer limbs of a lion, and his tail is like to a wild scorpion with a sting, and smiteth with hard bristle pricks as a wild swine, and hath a horrible voice as the voice of a trumpet, and he runneth full swiftly, and eateth men. And among all beasts of the earth is none found more cruel, nor more wonderful in shape. Later, Edward Topsell in his 1607 History of Four-Footed Beasts adds the notion that the spines from the beast's stinging tail can be shot out, but there also happens to be a way for disabling this ability. When the Indians take a whelp of this beast, they bruise the buttocks and tail thereof, that so it may never be fit to carry sharp quills. Afterwards, it is tamed without peril. But already in the second century, there was some skepticism about this beast. The Greek writer Pausanias, different from the uh, Pausanias I mentioned uh, being walled up alive in our last show, mentions the manticore in uh, one of his travelogues, writing, I'm inclined to think is the tiger, that it has three rows of teeth and spikes at the tip of its tail. All this, I think, a false story that the Indians pass on from one to another, owing to their excessive dread of the beast. And indeed, there has been confusion between the manticore and the tiger. In the Middle Ages, another mythical beast combining a human head with the body not of a lion, but a tiger, uh, and going by the name Man-Tiger, became muddled with the uh, manticore, largely because of the similar-sounding names, and because the tiger was also indigenous to India. According to some accounts, the Man-Tiger differed not only in the uh, big cat upon which it was based, the tiger versus lion, but also it uh, had additional spiraled horns, boar tusks, and uh, hands and feet, like a monkey's. Another pair of mythical animals from these books that are often confused is the Laocrota and the Crocoda. The Laocrota, according to Pliny, was the swiftest of all beasts, about the size of an ass, with a stag's hunches, a lion's neck, tail and breast, badger's head, cloven hoof, mouth opening right back to the ears, and ridges of bone in place of rows of teeth. Among the shepherd's homesteads, it stimulates human speech and picks up the name of one of them, so as to call him to come out of doors and tear him to pieces, and also that it imitates a person vomiting to attract the dogs so that it may attack them. This animal alone digs up corpses. As if that weren't exotic enough, he also adds that its eyes have a thousand variations of color, more over that when its shadow falls on dogs. They are struck dumb and that it has certain magic arts by which it causes every animal at which it gazes three times to stand rooted to the spot. Now, as it turns out, if the Laocrota mates with lioness, it gives birth to a crocota. Pliny does not uh, fully describe the crocota other than to say it likewise imitates human speech and has an unbroken ridge of bone in each jaw forming a continuous tooth without any gum. Later medieval bestiaries add an interesting touch, claiming that the eyes of the crocota consisted of precious stones, which if placed under the tongue, could produce oracular speech. 
aspects of the Laocrota and Crocota may have uh, been inspired by stories or observations of hyenas, with the uh, Laocrota's digging up of corpses being one of these common traits, and the uh, mythical creature's speech mimicry being inspired by the hyena's so-called laughing vocalizations. And the spotted hyena, uh, Latin name Crocota Crocota, is obviously named for this uh, mythical animal. They laughed their whole life long. <laughs> the laughing hyena song. <laughs> we'll be looking a bit more intensively at our next creature, the basilisk, whose name comes from the Greek for little king. Though later medieval or renaissance texts would enlarge the creature into a fire-breathing dragon, earlier descriptions portray the little king as indeed uh, diminutive, uh, even for a snake. Its elevated status derives not from its size, but its extremely lethal nature. Pliny says that, Anyone who sees the eyes of a basilisk serpent dies immediately. Its touch and even its breath scorch grass kill bushes and burst rocks. Its poison is so deadly that once when a man on a horse speared a basilisk, the venom traveled up the spear and killed not only the man, but also the horse. Isidore of Seville, the uh, 7th century archbishop and scholar, in his uh, Etymologie, a sort of uh, encyclopedia of the wisdom of the classical world, adds that birds flying within sight of the basilisk no matter how far away they may be, are burned up. However, all writers agree that there is one creature that can kill the basilisk, and that is the weasel, though many agree that the weasel will itself be killed in the process. And others say that the weasel must uh, first eat the herb rue to defeat the creature, or that the scent of the weasel or its urine is what kills the basilisk, or that the tears of a griffin may defeat the basilisk. Or uh, later, that if the creature should uh, see its own deadly gaze reflected back in a mirror, it will die. The uh, weasel, being a lethal foe of the basilisk, has suggested to many a real-world basis for the myth, namely the relationship of the mongoose and cobra. The basilisk also is often described as having a sort of jewel, or crest, or spots on its head, interpreted as a crown befitting the uh, king of snakes, and the uh, basilisk's ability to kill at a distance through its breath or poison might likewise have been inspired by the uh, venom spit by cobras. Once a weasel defeats a basilisk, you uh, might want to uh, hang on to those remains because uh, certain recipes in alchemical texts call for the use of the ash of its cremated body or a powder made from its blood, the latter which can be used to create what's called Spanish gold. So says uh, Theophilus Presbyter, a pseudonym for an anonymous 13th century German monk and compiler of recipes and uh, formula in a book called, in Latin, On Various Arts. You would uh, also need a certain kind of vinegar, red copper, and uh, powdered human blood for this gold. By the late Middle Ages, another creature called the cockatrice had begun to merge identities with that of the basilisk. Both creatures had a mortal enemy in the weasel and a similarly deadly venom, breath, and gaze. But the cockatrice took on certain features not originally typical of the more uh, snake-like uh, basilisk. Its uh, serpentine body differed by sometimes having uh, legs, two legs, and wings, 
and it would always have the head of a rooster. The description of the basilisk as uh, wearing a crown or being somehow crested would later, as the uh, creatures merged, sometimes be imagined as a rooster's comb or crest. The cockatrice and often later the basilisk were often both connected to the uh, rooster via their method of birth. Both were born from an egg laid not by a chicken but a rooster, so uh, miraculously laid by a male bird and then incubated by a snake or sometimes a toad. Or sometimes it was said that the basilisk distinguished itself by being birthed not from a rooster's egg but a snake's egg incubated by a rooster. While we're on the topic of the uh, cockatrice, there's a curious story of one of these beasts menacing the town of Renwick in northwestern England in 1733. The first mention of this appears in an 18th century history of the county of Cumberland, in which the incident is alluded to rather vaguely. Uh, something to do with an unnamed family being exempted from paying a church tax thanks to an ancestor slaying a monster threatening the village. That is... A noxious cockatrice, which the vulgar today call a Christ. I don't believe that regional name, Christ, survived or was used anywhere else, but it is a good one. Um, now, by 1855, this legend is being reinterpreted in the Transactions of the Historic Society of Lancashire and Cheshire. The Cumbrian monster is alleged to have been nothing more formidable than a bat of extraordinary size, which terrified the people in the church or the vestry one morning, so that all fled save the clerk, who, valiantly giving battle, succeeded in striking it down with his staff. There are perhaps more stories of uh, mortals pitting their wits against the basilisk. In Vienna, you can visit the exact spot where one of these stories supposedly transpired in the year 1212. The spot is marked by a niche in the facade which contains an odd little sculpture of the beast and a mural with text that uh, recounts the legend. The uh, story involves an apprentice baker eager for the hand of the daughter of his employer, the uh, master baker. Uh, the would-be father-in-law, however, regarded the suitor as wholly inadequate. According to the 1923 book, Prehistoric Animals in Folktales, Legends, and Superstition, by Othenio Abel, the master baker points at a rooster wandering in the yard and cries, As soon as this foolish rooster, foolish as you, lays an egg, that's when you'll have my daughter as a wife. With these words, the bird begins cackling madly and takes flight. At the same moment, a scream issues from the courtyard outside the bakery. There, the baker's daughter stands terrified by some disturbance at the bottom of the well where she's been drawing water. A crowd gathers around the well from which issues a strange, whispery sound and terrible stench. The apprentice volunteers to investigate, descending to the bottom of the well where he encounters a ghastly animal with a jagged, scaly tail, weird, glowing eyes, and gnarled feet sitting there, wearing a little crown on his head. When the young man reports to those gathered above what he has seen, a learned doctor recognizes the creature for a basilisk, explaining that the only way it might be destroyed is to show it a mirror. Screwing up his courage, the apprentice descends, this time equipped with the mirror, 
And, indeed, when the basilisk sees its own deadly gaze reflected back, it disintegrates. With the menace defeated, the master baker has a change of heart and gives his daughter in marriage to the brave apprentice. Better known, perhaps, is the tale of the basilisk that menaced the citizens of Warsaw in 1587. This story is recounted in a tract written by the historian Georg Kaspar Kirschmeier in 1691, and we'll be quoting an 1886 translation from the book Unnatural History or Myths of Ancient Science by Edmund Goldsmith. It begins with two little girls amusing themselves by entering the basement of a house that for 30 years has lain in ruins. When it comes time for dinner and the girls don't return, a servant is sent to retrieve them and spies the two girls sprawled dead at the lowest steps of the cellar stairway. Even as she turns to flee, she herself falls dead. Her mistress, having seen her enter and unable to call her forth, panics, drawing a crowd who agree to go to the town consul to deal with whatever evil lies down those stairs. And so, orders are given to have the bodies drawn out with hooked poles. When this had been done, they were found to be swollen like drums. Their tongues swelled, and the color of their skins was dark, while their eyes protruded from their sockets as large as half a hen's egg. Another learned doctor, after hearing complaints of an evil hanging over the ruined building, and after seeing these uh, bodies pulled from within, concludes that the noxious environment has been created by a basilisk. Asked what remedy he suggests, he... Replied that someone should be sent into the cellar, furnished with a covering of mirrors facing in all directions. For, said he, the basilisk will at once die when it sees its own image. The consul, knowing that there are two criminals currently detained and facing execution, asks if one might, in exchange for sparing his life, be willing to face this evil. One of them, a Silesian by the name of Johann Fauer, volunteers. Accordingly, his whole body was covered with leather, his eyelids fastened down on the pupils. One hand was armed with a hooked pole, and the other with a blazing torch. In the presence of more than 2,000 persons who looked on in the highest excitement, the man descended into the cellar, a mass of mirrors from head to foot. A first attempt to locate the beast fails, but discovering a second cellar hidden behind a wall of rubbish, the Silesian clears it away and spies the serpent lying in a niche in the wall. We don't hear any details of the beast's death, but apparently the mirrors do their job, and the lifeless thing is hauled up into the daylight where the doctor pronounces it a basilisk. It's described as the size of an ordinary fowl, but otherwise quite extraordinary in appearance. In its head, it had somewhat the appearance of an Indian cock. Its crest was like a crown, partly covered with a bluish color. Its back was covered with several outgrowths, and its eyes were those of a toad. It was covered all over with the hues of venomous animals, which gave it a general tawny tinge. Its tail was curved back, 
and bent over its body, a yellowish hue beneath, and of the same color as the toad at its extremity. But the town most firmly associated with the basilisk, and one that in fact regards the creature as its heraldic symbol, is Basel, Switzerland. It's not really known where this connection came from. A uh, 16th century account from the German scholar Beatus Reynus claims that uh, one day a merchant happened to show up at a meeting of the town council with a stuffed specimen of the creature in tow. Uh, one that so charmed the councillors that they put it on the city seal. But in the same book, Renus also suggests, more convincingly, that it was all a matter simply of wordplay. Today you can find basilisks everywhere in the city. There's uh, one carved in the doorway of the 12th century minster, another in a relief uh, on a wall of the town hall, but uh, most common are the basilisk fountains. Presumably this connection was forged by the old legend that a basilisk was discovered in a well or fountain in what was once the Tanner's Quarters. And there are today uh, 28 fountains throughout the city that feature sculptures of the uh, beast spewing water. Basel is also home to a, a hotel, a radio station, electronics company, and beer named for the uh, mythological beast. But the most interesting connection the city has with this uh, creature comes from a 15th century incident involving an egg said to have been laid by a rooster, a male that is, not only an oddity, but something that requires only the incubation of a snake to hatch a basilisk. Mrs. Carswell will read an account of this incident from a fascinating 1906 book by E.P. Evans, The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. In 1474, the magistrates of Basel sentenced a cock to be burned at the stake for the heinous and unnatural crime of laying an egg. The trial was held on a height near the city called Kohlenberg, with as great solemnity as would have been observed in consigning a heretic to the flames, and was witnessed by an immense crowd of townsmen and peasants. Evans further notes that, according to an account from 1624, a brief chronicle of Basel, that the crowd insisted that before burning the creature it be split open in order to see whether the bird contained more of these eggs. Eggs associated not only with the basilisk, but also regarded as an ingredient used in witches' spells and ointments. When this was done, three more eggs were said to have been found and the animal burned before an even more outraged crowd. One last animal, the salamander. Not the salamander you know, of course. This is the salamander, the bestiaries. Though by the Renaissance, the salamander is visualized more like the newt-like animal we know today, a few earlier representations uh, would present the creature in other shapes, out of a bird, a winged dog, or even a sort of satyr. More important than its bodily form were two other traits, its imperviousness to fire and the toxicity of the poison it produced. Not only was the salamander supposed to be impervious to fire, it was also sometimes said to extinguish flames around it, or to be itself born out of fire. One explanation for the latter is that uh, salamanders might tend to hide in uh, damp piles of firewood, only coming out once the wood has been set alight in the fireplace. And then when frightened, as it 
would be in a flaming fireplace. The salamander exudes a liquid that could suggest uh, to observers a uh, magically protective fire barrier. Anyway, these beliefs gave birth to a number of superstitious practices, such as the use of charms containing dried salamander hearts as a prophylactic against fire. Or, um, with uh, glass workers in England, there was a custom of extinguishing furnaces every seven years, lest a salamander be generated in the flames. Tales of salamanders surviving fire are recounted quite earnestly in um, surprisingly recent times. Uh, this one, for instance, supposedly transpiring in 1789, that is, almost in the 19th century, is related in the English Cyclopedia, A New Dictionary of Universal Knowledge of 1854. A certain French council at Rhodes, Pontonnier by name, stated that whilst sitting in his chamber, there he heard a loud cry in his kitchen. Running thither, he found his cook in a horrible fright, saying he had seen the devil in the fire. Thereupon, Pontonnier, looking into the fire, saw a little animal with open mouth and palpitating throat. When first observed, the creature was perfectly quiet, and so remained until the council tried to lay hold of it with the tongs. Thereupon, it ran to the corner of the chimney, leaving the tip of its tail between the blades of the tongs. No sooner had it arrived at the corner than it buried itself in a heap of hot ashes. The consul took the trouble of removing the creature and placing it in a vial of alcohol and sending it along to a naturalist friend, who found the whole thing less than miraculous, commenting on the roasted specimen. There was a lizard indeed and a somewhat mutilated one at that. As for the uh, mythical salamander's poison, it was not only toxic to those touching the creature, but its effects could be transmitted more indirectly. Isidore of Seville, for instance, wrote that, If it crawls into a tree, it poisons all the fruit, and anyone who eats the fruit will die. If it falls into a well, it poisons the water, so that any who drink it die. A more dramatic account claims that by merely passing through a river from which a salamander drank, Alexander the Great's army was poisoned with a devastating loss of 4,000 men and 2,000 horses. I believe this is from a manuscript written by a 13th century English monk, though there's some debate about the source on this one. Of course, this idea of the creature's toxicity, uh, this mythical trait, actually happens to have a basis in reality as several species of salamander do secrete a poison through their skin. This uh, toxin, dubbed uh, salamandrin, happens to be the active ingredient in a Slovenian drink known as salamander brandy, one uh, purported to produce remarkable hallucinogenic and aphrodisiac effects. This drink uh, came to the attention of English speakers through a translation of a 1995 article in the Slovenian magazine Mladina, in which the author recounts sampling the stuff and experiencing auditory hallucinations and colorful flashes and sexual disorientation, which he recounts in an ecstatic passage ending with him forcing himself amorously on a beech tree. However, the writer of this article was more of a um, Hunter S. Thompson type than 
objective researchers, so some skepticism over all this would be natural. In 2003, when a team of anthropologists visited the region of Slovenia where the brandy was said to have been sampled, they were unable to find any. Which is not to say the whole thing was made up. In fact, they did manage to collect stories of certain distillers who added salamanders to their output, but that product was never described by the locals in terms of uh, desirable aphrodisiac or hallucinogenic effects. Rather, it was a product of shady distillers looking to add a kick of whatever quality to inferior brandy. And it was regarded with the same contempt as uh, brandy distilled not from fruit, but beans or beets or potatoes during uh, times of want. More typically, um, one of their informants, an old woman, reported that any hangover her husband experienced after a brandy binge he would inevitably blame on accidentally consuming something tainted by salamanders. The actual effects of uh, salamandrin as clinically evaluated are not pretty and can include convulsions, respiratory paralysis, and death. Nonetheless, you will find various American and English websites promoting this mostly mythical and unwholesome product with the Mystique once reserved for absinthe in its illegal days, that is, as a sort of holy grail for the alcoholic in the know. For our final segment, I want to discuss a few accounts in which the salamander is associated with uh, miraculous or uh, seemingly miraculous happenings. In the late Middle Ages and early modern period, European travelers' tales occasionally mention something called salamander wool from the Far East, a substance used there in making garments impervious to fire. For this reason, you'll sometimes see salamanders rendered as uh, woolly or furry creatures in certain bestiaries. And many scholars now believe these garments did indeed exist, but were made using asbestos. Pope Alexander III was said to have owned a tunic made of salamander wool, one that when soiled would be placed in a fire to return it to its pure white state, uh, an attribute of these garments you'll find in uh, other accounts of the period. And uh, human beings seemingly able to withstand uh, furnace-like temperatures themselves once were called human salamanders or use this name to promote themselves and their performances. There are any number of sideshow artists going by this moniker throughout history, but two of the more interesting are a Frenchman known only by his last name, Chabert, and a Russian likewise using only his family name, Chamouni. Here's a report on a London performance Chabert presented in June of 1826, recounted in the Everyday Book and Table Book. Uh, an enormous, uh, specially prepared oven was part of this performance. He entered this stove accompanied by a rump steak and a leg of lamb when the heat was about 220. He remained there in the first instance for 10 minutes till the steak was properly done, conversing all the time with the company through a tin tube placed in an orifice formed in the sheet iron door of the oven. After those 10 minutes, he emerges with a perfectly cooked steak and serves it to the audience. I guess this is dinner theater. Having seen that the company had done justice to the meat that he had already cooked, he returned to his fiery den and continued there until the lamb was properly done. 
This joint was devoured with such avidity by the spectators as leads us to believe that had Monsieur Chabert himself been sufficiently baked, they would have proceeded to eat him too. Similar stunts were performed by the uh, Russian Shamauni. While not that much has been written about him, Shamauni is memorialized in perhaps a half-dozen wax likenesses exhibited in Ripley's Believe It or Not museums across the country. I'm not sure exactly when he performed, but the earliest uh, newspaper accounts are from the late 1820s, so sometime before that. We'll close the show with a bit about him from an Australian newspaper, Clarence and Richmond Examiner, an article from December 1904. He would also present his tongue in the most obliging manner to all who wished to pour melted lead upon it and stamp an impression of their seal. His grand experiment was to enter an oven with a raw leg of mutton and not to retire from it till the joint was thoroughly baked. Shimoni, however, entered the oven once too often. His ashes were collected and conveyed to his native town where a neat monument has been erected to his memory. A sad ending, but at least we can hope the lamb turned out well. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends who might enjoy the same thing. We particularly appreciate reviews as these are the best way to raise the show's uh, profile on Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you've left a review, by all means, do let me know and we'll give you a little shout out. Our uh, website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes with plenty of images and video links to any uh, film trailers or clips or music that's used in the program. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link on the site. Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the uh, show soundscapes you hear in the background, my Krampus book, and a special handcrafted mystery kit mailed to our top level donors. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours that goes into each of these episodes. Special thanks to our latest subscribers, Pear, Candace, and Robert Espy, who just upped his pledge. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mr. Petrovich was played by Thomas Ferranti, and Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>